You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. All right, Stokes Family Office, Lanyap Podcast. It is uh, August 30th, Wednesday, heading into Labor Day weekend. Uh, first, uh, today we had a, a major hurricane hit uh, the the Florida coast and seemingly an area that was sparsely populated. So uh, obviously, we're our our thoughts and hearts are out to anyone affected. I think from a just a global perspective, it probably couldn't have hit anywhere better just from a population Absolutely. density standpoint. But uh, uh, thoughts are with anyone affected by the hurricane and and hoping for no more of that for the remainder of this hurricane season, uh, specifically in the area where we live. Um, uh, so a lot happened this week. The The most, I think the two biggest things that we saw in economic news is number one, the jobs report, and number two, a revision to GDP data. Both of those uh, were, were seemingly a negative uh, for the economy, meaning the economy is cooling off. Uh, first, GDP was revised down uh, for Q2 from, I think, two point eight uh, annualized rate of 2.7% to, I think, 2.1% or something like that. And, uh, and then uh, in terms of job openings, have declined substantially um, from their peak during 2021. And so it looks like just uh, monetary policy uh, set by the Federal Reserve is taking its hold. Uh, the the silver lining here, at least, is this this is from so these economic prognosticators, is that uh, there there's some Goldilocks data in here. Number one, the uh, labor market cooling is really driven by uh, a lack of hiring and not layoffs. And so, um, number one, we're not seeing mass layoffs occur, which is uh, generally a positive. Uh, firms are just pulling back on hiring. Uh, the second uh, being that at as job mar- the job market cools and as GDP slows down, the Federal Reserve uh, can pull back the brakes on aggressive, uh, restrictive monetary policy. Which the longer that that goes on, the the heightened risk of recession that we have, and so uh, less restriction would be accommodated for growth and and less accommodated for those calling for recession. So. Uh, markets are responding in a positive way this week, and I think just simply because uh, the economy is is coming to a slowdown, and and I guess market participants are predicting that that slowdown doesn't necessarily mean recession. That's exactly right. So if if the Fed stops doing what it's doing, or potentially starts to cut rates in response to all of this data, and we don't have a recession and it's huge layoffs or whatever, then they've accomplished the soft landing that um, everyone prognosticated wasn't possible. Um, in terms of other data in the job side of the equation, total non-farm job quits are um, looser than uh, pre-COVID. I mean, pardon me, the labor market is looser than pre-COVID. People are quitting their job at a much lower rate than they were pre-COVID. So that was also a data point that came out this week that's, that basically said that employers are slowing down on hiring and people are not quitting their jobs either, which is really a great indicator of the, um, of the actual context of what's happening from an employment situation in the country. And that also goes into the, to that same sort of narrative that we may be approaching the sort of end of this sort of, um, uh, high, uh, rate hiking cycle, because if all of a sudden 
companies are, aren't hiring people, people aren't, aren't quitting, then the Fed conceivably needs to slow down or could slow down and come up with a justification to slow down uh, or, potentially, or, or potentially stop cutting altogether. Stop raising altogether. Stop raising altogether. Exactly. Yeah, I think uh, I think it goes to you know part of the concern uh, if you if you follow financial news is that uh, the inflation that we saw and have been seeing for the last couple of years uh, will moderate and then reaccelerate. That's what happened in the 1970s, and so uh, the Federal Reserve um, that one of their big fears is just a return to that type of regime. In order to do so, I think there are two things have to, have to happen. Number one, you have to have a huge commodity boom. So, uh, if you know specifically oil takes back off uh, because of issues going on in whether it's Russia, Ukraine, or the Middle East, um, that could cause issues. And the and the second component of that is uh, what they call a wage p- price spiral. And essentially, uh, as you have a really strong labor market, and as people c- can either trade up for better jobs or ask for uh, higher pay because of such a tight labor market, uh, then employees have sort of the upper hand versus employers from a negotiating perspective. And that would cause theoretically more inflation because people are getting paid more, they have more money to spend, they spend more money, uh, cost of goods increases. And so I think um, those two things seem to be uh, at a lower probability now, number one, that uh, the labor market is cooling off. Uh, and then number two, we haven't seen a huge rebound. There's been a, a slight increase in the price of oil, but just commodities in general haven't had this huge spike uh, since uh, really early 2022. Right. And that uh, particular situation of commodity spike is exactly what occurred in the 70s when um, there was a, an embargo of oil and um, the uh, United States experienced like uh, all these extraneous events because the price of oil was so high. Um, you can see the pictures of people lining up their, their cars behind gas at gas stations trying to get um, fuel. And, and anyway, we developed the strategic petroleum reserve as a result of that. Um, but that's really the, the if we avoid any sort of situation like that, then we do end the wage price viral that you referenced. Then we could conceivably have this sort of soft landing. One of the, the really sort of worrying, or there's actually there's sev- always several worrying aspects of the marketplace, but the one that's sort of in your face all the time, just as like a consumer or someone um, that's you know living in a, a city or and transacting in real estate, every most people that we associated with um, own homes, for example. And the price of real estate and the real estate industry in general in the United States, especially on the higher end price of real estate um, spectrum side of the spectrum, is really just sort of it's almost a, it's really a bloodbath, and and you can see that. If you look in um, in the real estate, uh, uh, the person, the uh, personal real estate, uh, residential real estate side of the spectrum in New Orleans, and the data bears that out in um, in a lot of big cities in the United States. Really, there's not there's only a few exceptions of where um, prices have held up on the higher end side of the ex- uh, of the equation. This is data from Fortune. Home price decline from peak in the nation's 40 largest housing markets by price tier. Basically, lower price home. The, the data shows that, like, in general, lower priced homes are at their peak, essentially. Um, and then on the higher end side of the equation, uh, home prices are way off their highs. Uh, and, and especially in certain markets like San Francisco, obviously, that's been struggling. Um, but also in places like Austin, Jacksonville, Florida, Nashville, Tennessee, Portland, Oregon, Denver, Colorado, San Diego. 
Minneapolis, anywhere basically that uh, even if, like you've got, like I said, there's some exceptions that it's like really strong markets, but like even places that are conceivably strong, like Dallas, um, are still not at peak. Um, but it's, it's, it's really the opposite side of the spectrum on cheaper houses. And, and I, and we, you and I were talking about this before we got started, that the interest rates really are, are really meaningful when you start talking about big dollars. And so I, I want, I want to get your thoughts on, on this particular issue and, um, and the ramifications that potentially could result from this, this sort of, uh, this, this lockdown in the, um, the residential real estate market. Um, well, I think, uh, the, the first thing is that the, the silver lining or benefit here is that, um, over 90% of outstanding mortgages right now are fixed at a rate of less than 6%. A lot of those mortgages were taken out during 2020 and 2021 at rates, uh, you know, 3% or lower. And so, uh, houses that are transacting are transacting, especially on the higher end at, at a lower price point, simply because the cost to service that mortgage is just insanely high at a 7% plus interest rate. Um, but there's just not a whole lot of transactions happening. So I think you have this whole shadow, uh, market of declines, uh, across the board where you're not really seeing that in the data because there's not a whole lot of transactions occurring. This was, uh, from Redfin that only 1% of us homes changed ownership this year, the lowest share in at least a decade per Redfin. Um, so I think what's, what's happening is people are just sitting and waiting this out. Uh, the other side of the equation is if you need a place to live, uh, you know, then you go and rent. And the positive here is that rents, uh, across the board, this is a, according to apartment list are down year over year, monthly rent data, negative 1.22% year over year, uh, rents and vacancy rates still weakening Sunbelt getting into the mid single digits. So you mentioned Austin earlier, Austin's at a, uh, negative 5% year over year growth. If you look at, um, this is John Burns real estate in terms of, uh, migration data. Uh, the big story of 2020 and 2021 was essentially the move out of California and into Texas and, and Florida, specifically cities like Austin and Miami. Uh, and if you look at that data now, uh, there's uh, migration out of Austin and Miami, uh, simply, uh, I think because, you know, people got out of, let's say your Bay area and into, into those cities during COVID, but also, um, you go through a summer and, uh, you go through a summer in Austin and you're like, well, maybe I should pay the tax in California. Uh, but yeah, it's crazy. I mean, look, uh, Austin, negative 5%, Vegas, negative 5% over the past 12 months, the past six months, Miami, negative 1%. Uh, past three years, I think this is the most amazing stat that I've seen. Uh, these are the top, uh, top 10, uh, changes in rents, uh, on a percentage basis. Uh, the highest three are at 17%, then at 16%. And then in third place, New Orleans plus 15% and change in rent. Um, which is, wow. I find amazing. Uh, that's gotta be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, so I think, uh, it's, uh, it is, it's definitely, uh, a market. I think the housing market is just completely frozen at this point. And then if, if things were to transact, they would be at a much lower rate because you just can't afford the debt service. So people are just sort of sticking, sticking with their locked in sub 6% rate and waiting it out. So a couple of things here, Doug, as I'm looking at this fortune um, data that we're going to publish to the show notes, the areas that seem to be winning are the Midwest, upper Midwest, 
in terms of the the housing prices at, at the higher end of the spectrum and lower end of the spectrum that are near all-time highs or at all-time highs. You see like Cleveland, Ohio, Indianapolis, Indiana, Columbus, Ohio, Kansas City, et cetera, that are doing really well. Um, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, East Coast is also doing very well in general too. Um, and then the ones that you just referenced, like there were really big winners in COVID. Um, there's still like, you've got still some some success in the Dallas and um, and uh, like San Antonio areas, Houston, et cetera. But otherwise, it's really like the like I mentioned, Nashville, Tennessee, which is a really big had a big influx, and Austin was has really suffered. If you look at some of these places, like it's not unreasonable to have a two million dollar mortgage in a place like Austin. Um, and if you just just for context, the differential, and I'm I'm on uh, Google's mortgage calculator at a two point six percent interest rate, which is which is the mortgage interest rate that I have on my uh, residence, for example which is a, not an abnormal one if you got your did a refinance or re, or bought a house in um in 2020, 2021, 2019, etc. on a $2 million mortgage is $8,000 a month at today's mortgage rates which Google defaults to 8%. That's $14,675 a month. So it's about a $6,500 a month a month delta between there. So the same exact mortgage is now seventy-eight on a two million dollar uh, piece of property is seventy-eight thousand dollars a year higher now than it was um, two or three years ago. So pretty amazing. And um, it's data, all after tax dollars. It's all after tax dollars. You can't deduct the interest on that size of mortgage. And there's and the pool of buyers is re- relatively small. It's bigger in a place like Austin, for example, that's got big companies, et cetera. But that's an additional seventy-eight thousand dollars after tax that somebody has to make basically to be able to service that same mortgage. It's really sort of crazy. And it's no surprise that the prices on these, on the property in these places, they got really bubbly, really frothy, like Austin have, have fallen quite dramatically. Yeah. Uh, I think this is a, I think a lot of what we've seen this year and last is just a, uh, extremes on the up and the downside, or I guess the last few years, that, that COVID just threw a lot of the data out of whack. We had uh, a lot of a, a very easy monetary policy, a lot of uh, money that flooded into the system through COVID relief uh, that pushed a lot of assets into bubble territory, whether it was real estate or whether it was sort of the uh, venture area of, of markets or a small cap type growth area of the stock market. And then we had a huge, and at least for liquid securities, had a huge decline last year. I think the illiquid stuff, uh, you know, the stuff that doesn't transact as, as easily is, start, is starting to feel it in 2023. So I think that this is just a huge influx followed by a huge uh, sort of reduction or out, outflow of capital from areas that whether it's if it's liquid, it happens quickly. And if it's illiquid, it just sort of has a lag effect associated with it. Yeah, so as you were talking about these small cap growth companies, I saw recently that Peloton filed their earnings and their stock price got to like $5 a share. At one point during COVID, it was up to $150 a share, but I'm just I'm surprised that I wonder if that company is even going to make it at all. Um I rode my Peloton the other day and enjoyed it. Um yeah, yeah I mean, uh, it doesn't mean that it's a good. You're company. one of the one of the hundred people in the country that's right. doing it, I guess. Um, but a lot of times, this, I mean, that's it's it's that particular. I'm sure that was a company that um, sounded good in the v, the venture capital pitch room, et cetera, the Shark Tanks, so to speak. But speaking of Shark Tank, 
you know what has been what I saw was really interesting. So a lot of these things sound sexy, like let's strap an iPad to a bike and you can ride, take a ride class in in this in your the comfort of your own home, which was great actually during COVID when you had no other option basically. Um, speaking of Shark Tank, I saw this. Mark Cuban said that after investing nearly twenty million dollars in eighty five startups on C on a like I think it was on NBC on NBC Shark Tank. He's taken a net loss across all of these deals combined. What's your thoughts on that particular statistic as it relates to these sort of uh, wacky uh, business propositions? And like you've got Peloton that actually was a viable business for a moment there. Now it's out the window. What do you think about Cuban, Doug? I'm not really surprised by that. I think if you look at uh, the venture capital data in general, it's basically they make you know, 40 or 50 bets across the fund and expect one or two to really be, um, you know, the, the home runs that are the sort of the, uh, that return the fund and then some, and then just hope you don't lose completely everything on, uh, on every one of the, uh, the other companies. So I think that just the probabilities of, uh, you know, being successful in startups is extremely low and the professionals that do this, um, and you know, even the top tier venture fund managers are, you know, their hit rate is, you know, is probably less than 10%. And so I'm not surprised that, that Cuban, um, you know, you would think that, uh, somebody's, somebody would rather go to a, you know, venture or private equity type fund before going on shark tank. And so I'm not sure the quality of, uh, the actual founders that are getting a shark take are, are really, uh, in the, in the home run type, uh, class that these venture managers end up hitting well and if you think about cuban in particular his the way that he made his billions was by selling his his company into the dot-com bubble what was the name of his company do you remember off the top of your head uh broadcast.com or something like that well yeah so Um, anyway he sold his company for like three billion dollars and then after the fact that it was just a timing thing so he was just very fortunate basically to be selling into a bubble um, so timing can be can drive a lot of these things, and I don't think that business was really viable after the fact. But I think the really the yeah. and well, it's, you, I mean, I think it's the precursor to uh, sort of podcasting like we're doing uh, today. But yeah, I think a lot of this stuff was early. But I think you make a good point. Uh, you know, ultimately, how these uh, these early stage investors get paid is by somebody else, you know, paying up for. Uh, for their company and not through the cash flows of the company. So or it's right place, either, right time. Yeah. And it's either some other, you know, later stage manager is going to, uh, you know, pay up for control of the company, uh, or another company will buy you, or you just go to public markets and, and dump it on, uh, dump it on the public and, and let them experience the loss. And that's really what happened in 2021 and uh, happened previously in in 2000. Yeah, it's kind of like it reminds me of like the speaking of dumping something on the public. There was all these all these companies that were IPOing at the same time during 2021 and 2022. I mean, there's a SPAC craze, right? Exactly. But I remember seeing uh, Traeger was that was one of the the uh, those particular companies that was dumped on the public. That was like this popular retail product. They, if you guys are not familiar, Traeger is a grill that has this auger that pushes in pellets into a grill and you can basically cook with these wood pellets very kind of cool product etc at at its ipo it was priced at 22 dollars a share in july of 2021 and then now it's like a four dollar stock or something like that so same sort of 
um, thing that Doug's talking about was that these Traeger people made a fortune. They, they priced their grill company at the right time um, and, and extracted billions of dollars basically from these, this uh, euphoria that was existing in the public markets, um, which was, I guess, at the time about, it was about a $4 billion stock. Now it's a $500 million stock worded that uh, $350 million go probably to the individuals that founded that particular company, which is a great company in and of itself, but certainly not a billion dollar company um, or was at the point that point in time. Yeah. I think, uh, I think subscribing to the greater fool theory that, uh, you know, eventually somebody is going to pay you more than you paid for a particular asset um, specifically in public markets. But that, I think that occurs in private markets as well. Uh, instead of focusing on cash flows and dividends and you know, companies that have real earnings and and the ability to grow earnings over time, uh, I think uh, that's just always been an exercise in futility. And you know, there are some people that time it right. Uh, companies obviously know better than the the market when to go public, and uh, <laughs> and the reason is because they they think that they the liquidity is there and the valuation they can get is uh, is pretty attractive, and so. Yeah, I think uh, I got another one example for you. This what? is Solo Stove. Remember that? Remember that IPO? Uh, yeah. That, yeah, that was a uh, that. This is a really kind. Of, I I have one of these things. They're like three or four hundred bucks, and you. It's basically they've engineered this fire pit that if the the fire burns hot enough, it's not doesn't create as much smoke than a normal outdoor fire pit. This this company IPO also in October of 2021, so it's kind of around the same time as uh, Traeger. And they IPO'd at $19 a share, which is uh, right now it's $5 and change a share. So that's it's sold off 70% or whatever since its peak. But um, at one point it was in the 2 or $3 billion range, and now it's a $500 million company. Similar type of uh, you know, timing where somebody made a ton of money because they sold into the euphoria, dumped their, comp- dumped their, um, their company, which is uh, or sold a significant portion of their company off. Um, at the right time to the to the public markets, yeah, I think it. And I think currently public markets uh, have the upper hand against uh, private markets, just because simply the uh, the market has realized that uh, there's not going to be that much uh, euphoria for sort of these uh, unproven model tech companies coming public, or even you know consumer brands that were popular during COVID. And so the IPO window is effectively closed at this point, but it'll come up again, uh, whether it's in the form of AI or something else, uh, we're going to see euphoria occur. And I think it's good to remember that these things have happened in the past. I think we had uh, Jamie Catherwood on early in 2022, one of our first guests, talk about uh, bubble mania. And he, he highlighted Peloton, which was a good call at the time as a, as a typical bubble stock. But he had, want, he had gone through history of, of how these things occur. And uh, I, I would expect another one to occur in the near future. And I think if I've had to throw sort of my chips on something, I would think AI is going to be the next crazy craze in the IPO world. And just to remember that these things don't always go great. Yep, exactly. And, and then on the other side of the equation, like and Catherine would talked about this, it was pretty hilarious that like there was bubbles that existed about like bicycle companies in the 1900s and breweries in the 1800s and railroads, et cetera. But on the other side of the equation, if you notice that people are freaking out and panicking is probably indicative of a good time to be buying. So if you, um, and that goes back to this, the same sort of, uh, Sir John Templeton quote that you, um, the bull markets are born on pessimism and mature on skepticism, et cetera. 
But this is a quote from Jim Rogers, a famous investor. Just about every time you go against panic, you will be right if you can stick it out. And so just as just as you should have avoid the euphoria that we're describing, you should relish the time when there's blood in the streets. Yeah. And I don't really know where we are right now. I think we're I think that the, it's funny that the markets are uh, responding this year pretty positively. And yet I think if, if you just from our at least from my vantage point, it's just general uh, skepticism across the market. And uh, I'm not seeing I think a couple of months ago, it seemed like there's nothing that could go wrong. But uh, but at least today, I would, I'd say that there's an air of nervousness that's in the air. Or skepticism um, but, that is this real or not, and everything. Yeah, so, so yeah, so I, I agree. I hope you're right because that means that the uh, bull market's got uh, ways to go. Wall of worry. All right. Well, we'll see you next week. Uh, thank you so much for joining. Give us a five star review and share with your friends. This is Lanyard Podcast with Doug and Greg Stokes. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.